My father-in-law has been a Kentucky farmer all his life. Dairy farmer for many years, plus tobacco, corn, and soybeans, and all. And over the years, through his stories, my respect for farmers has only deepened, often to the point of all, of the faith that it takes to simply be a farmer, to live by the land and the rhythms of the seasons, to put yourself at the mercy of markets and banks and agribusinesses and pests and snakes and coyotes. And the most unpredictable variable of all, the weather. And last year, he and Suzanne sent us pictures of their farm, the soybean crop, and it was green, deep green, lush, verdant. But we were talking this fall, and now the story is drought. A wet, late summer has given way to a dry, parched fall. And uh, days and days of 25 mile an hour sustained winds. The corn is falling off the stalks, he said. And the soybeans are popping out of their pods and shrinking and bursting. This is going to be a hard year for a lot of people. Now, for most of us, the story may not be farming, but a life nevertheless lived at the mercy of time and turning. Each of us in our own way knows of fat years and thin. We know of market swings and business closings. We know what it means to look back on a year and raise a glass in celebration. We also know what it's like to look back on a year and raise a glass in hopes that January 1st will bring something better. We have heard the groaning gales of change that threaten order with disorder, and we have felt on our skin the steady winds that deplete, deplete what is plentiful until only a remnant remains, and Israel has too. The prophet Joel recalls the years of pain, of the many fall seasons of standing helplessly on the hank blue steps of the front porch and surveying what the swarming locust has eaten. He says, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter. What's more, Joel prophesies that this was God's doing. The swarming locust he calls God's great army, which I sent against you. I don't understand that about God. I went to seminary two times, still don't understand it, still, under, still not satisfied with the answers that I have been given about a God that would send locusts. But Joel says God turned the winds against God's people and the sky would turn black on the horizon and the people of the land hung their heads. But today, there is a decisive shift in the wind. Today, this same God of woe lifts up God's face to shine on the people in a new way. The devouring army of locusts has moved on. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice, for here comes the early rain, the rain and the later rain. Grain will pile up on the 
threshing floor, and the vats of wine will overflow. Thin years will be a memory. Now I promise you, remember that image from Psalm 23, a cup running over. Joel points us to a God who promises to provide, and not merely to provide, but to produce an overflow of abundance. One of my favorite stories about Jesus, and this is an ornery Jesus. We all have our favorite Jesuses. You got, uh, you got healing Jesus. You've got preaching Jesus. You've got a risen Jesus. You got from Ricky Bobby, you know, the, the little baby Jesus. <laughs> One of my personal favorite Jesuses is the ornery Jesus. So Jesus at the wedding at Cana, and this is in the Gospel of John, you can't find it anywhere else. But he's at the wedding, and I think he's sitting in the back of the party, and his mom comes up to him and says, look, they, they've run out of wine, we need your help. And I've got and that's when Jesus looks at his mom and he says, a woman? Now that right there is a problem. <laughs> that is not good decision, Jesus. Um, what is that to me? I've been to 30, 11 funeral uh, weddings. <laughs> There's a Freudian slip. Um, I've been to 30, 11 weddings this year. Can I just sit in the back row one time and nobody bother me? And somewhere between him saying woman to his mom and going and getting that wine ready, something changes. Goes and gets the steward, brings the vats of water. There's big cisterns of water. And this is at the end of the party. All the, all the wine that the family bought is out. Brings the water. Asks the steward to draw from the water. And when he does, he tastes it and it's wine. And it's not just any wine. It's not two buck chuck. This is not from a box. This is Chateau Bordeaux which I've never had, but I hear it's good. It's so good that the steward is stunned. You just don't do this. And as the party would have been concluding, everyone gets a second wind, and the party goes on. The cisterns are overflowing now with the finest wine. Jesus does this over and again. He surprises his disciples with an overflow of love. He surprises the crowds with an overflow of loaves and fish. He surprises his adversaries every time with an overflow of wisdom. He, the God of Jesus Christ, even surprises death with an overflow of life. <laughs> when Peter stands to preach in the streets of Jerusalem, it's overflow. To people of every nation and language, this passage from Joel is the scripture for his sermon. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. We hear it every year on Pentecost. And your sons and your daughters shall dream dreams. You'll prophesy. Your elders shall dream. Your youth shall see visions. I will pour out my spirit on everyone and I will draw the whole world to myself. 
This is the same God who surprised the chaos with order, who surprised the dust of the ground with breath. This is the same God who surprised the Israelites with manna in a lifeless desert. They just woke up one morning and it was there. The same God who surprised the dry bones with flesh and tendons and skin and senses and blood and breath and laughter and singing overflowing where you could peer down into the well and see only darkness and drop a coin and never hear it land until it hits a dark, dry dirt. Now you can see and hear the wells overflowing like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Where there had been only despair and devastation and wave after wave of hardship, God became jealous for his land and had pity on his people and said, I'm sending you an overflow of grain, wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a mockery among the nations. Now, I confess to you today that over these recent years, I've come become weary of cuts. Our congregational leaders are weary of cuts and we're all tired of cuts. Every year it's cuts. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. We have solved problems with cuts. You know that old game of operation? You take the little tweezers, make sure you had the batteries in, fresh batteries or it won't buzz you, but you had to take the tweezers and you got to go in those little holes and pick out the little organs and the bones and the things. But if you touch the little metal side of the hole, it buzzed you. (laughs) Well, now we've gotten to the point where any more cuts, we don't get buzzed, we get judged. Because a congregation doesn't cut their way to faithfulness. Let's say goodbye to those days. No, a faithful congregation recognizes its true potential and sees her role in God's saving work in the world. And she responds not with suspicion or with caution, but with trust and generosity. And just what is our role in God's saving work? What makes First Baptist Church of Asheville stand out? What's really at stake with our generosity? Well, for one thing, a congregation joyfully devoted to the worship of the triune God. It all turns on this. The worship of God here together. A congregation of true disciples of Jesus Christ who desire to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and our hearts. A congregation who lives up to her promises of affection for each other and our neighbors. A congregation who has served for generations and who will continue to serve as a bulwark against Christian fascism by continuing to cultivate havens of holy friendships. I just said something. A congregation who has done the careful work of opening their hearts to everyone. 
a congregation who invests not in church growth strategies, but in the musical arts and children and our dear ones with special needs, the hungry and the widow and the orphan. That's true religion, people. A prophetic congregation who tells the truth, come what may, cost what it will. Here we have hope. And here we have a chance to invest and lean onto the promises of a God who desires only to deal wondrously with us. So I will be even more direct. Our generosity for 2023 comes first. I'm asking you to be a faithful tither, a joyful tither. If you're experiencing financial hardship, you know that this burden is not on you. What we need most from you and from everyone is your affection, your presence, your attention, your open heart. For all others, if you can make a one-figure pledge, I'm asking you to make it today. If you can make a two-figure pledge, I'm asking you to make it today. If you can make a three-figure pledge, I'm asking you to make it today. If you can make a four-figure pledge, I'm asking you to make it today. If you can make a five-figure pledge, <laughs> for our capital campaign, I'm asking the same, and Aaron and I will join you in this effort. And here, if any in our fellowship are able to make a six-figure pledge, some of you can. We need you. Seven figures if you've got it. <laughs> now, together with our, our Sacred Places grant and the early pledges that we have, we've crossed the million-dollar mark. It's a $3.2 million campaign, and I know the dollars and the money, sometimes it just sounds like a cold wind on your ears, but this is about our sacred place, our sanctuary, and our gathering, and our love for each other, and our provision of this sacred place for our community and for the world. That's what it's about. And you can look back on this time years from now and, and be inspired by the profile of our sanctuary. You say, I was part of that. I helped do that. And the world is better because of it. We need everyone's help. Children, we need your help. We need you to sell lemonade and make arts and crafts and go around the neighborhood and endear yourself to your neighbors. Youth, we need your help. You're so smart. And Pentecost says that the Spirit is already poured out on you. I don't even need any proof of that. I just know it. We need our elders to be elders. Now's the time. 
So I'm going to give you, I'm going to leave you with two statements, observations. One is a, is a statement of deprivation, came from a former member who left our church. They looked me in the eye and they said, I don't believe the First Baptist Church has what it takes to live into this vision. But just a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, Children's Sabbath, my friend Liz was here. She just got married to Dan, and they came here to Asheville for their honeymoon. They sat right there, and they were so warmly welcomed. A few days later, that Wednesday, following Children's Sabbath, Liz texted me, and she said this. She said, there is something remarkable happening in your community. It is The watching world needs churches like ours to thrive. Our nation needs unique congregations like us. Our city needs our love and our affection. We need each other. We need God. God is calling us now to look upon the horizon and see the fields green, deep green, lush, verdant. And to see Pentecost is come.